0: You may be seated. So welcome. Thank you for coming today. It's going to be a little bit different today. We had kind of a last-minute audible here. Um, Unfortunately, Bob is sick, and we found out this morning. So I'll be up here doing something in a few minutes. Um, But thank you so much for being here. We are thankful to worship Jesus together. And we have an announcement. I think there's just one today. The shoe shoeboxes um, for Samaritan's Purse, they need to be turned in today. Um, or you can donate online. And if you remember, I think there's our little table out there. That's where the boxes can be placed. So again, turn them in today if you would. You can also donate online. And you can use, um, I think there's a link on the church's Facebook page as well. So whatever works best for you and I think that's pretty much our only announcement today. So, what I'm going to do is go right into the scripture reading and then we're going to dismiss and then I will excuse me, we're going to dismiss the kids and then I will pray. They're like that's it. Wrapping up. Let's see. So, 1 Corinthians verse 26. Through chapter 2, 1 to 5. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's God's Word. Amen. We'll dismiss the kids and then I'll I'll pray. Have a good time. So, Father, we come to you today just, again, saying thanks for the day you've given us, that we're all here, we're alive, we're breathing. Um, we know others are not here. They're not feeling well. We think of Bob right now. I just ask that you would heal his body, take away the sickness there. I know some of my kiddos at home aren't feeling well, that you would help, help them um, just with little colds and... God, we think of those who can't be with us, those that are belong with us but can't be here just because of um, illness, being in homes and various things. Would you comfort them? Would you comfort the lonely? And would you speak through your word today? Would you help us to know you, help us to boast in you? And we just recognize that we need you. We need you. In our church, we need you in this county, this state, this country, this world. um, We just acknowledge and confess that you are king and that you are the one with power. And so we ask that you might come and do a great work in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians is a very relevant book, I think, for right now. That's one of the reasons why we chose it as a church. Um, obviously, this is all of God's Word. It is God's words at all times, to His people at all times. But sometimes there are specific books, I think, that um, kind of stand out um, in certain settings and in certain cultures. And I think... Corinth and the Christians in Corinth at that time um, have a lot for us. Um, We can learn a lot from this book in our time right now. And one of the reasons for that is that the problems in Corinth are the problems in us. The problems in Corinth are the problems in us. The issues that Paul raises throughout this book are issues In many ways that are in all of our hearts as people that love Jesus, but as people that still sin are issues in our culture and in what we are surrounded with. Um, So I think that there is much here that God has for us as we continue to go through this book. The solution that Paul gives to the Corinthian churches is the solution for us. And sometimes I think we think we live in a really unique age with all kinds of complexities, all kinds of problems, all kinds of questions, various sin that we think runs rampant. And sometimes we can develop a kind of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, where we kind of think we are in maybe just a really unique spot. Um, and what we find is that our situation is not most unique. It resembles much of what happened in Corinth. Yes, there are new things, there are new technologies, there are new philosophies, kind of. (laughs) Um, But as Ecclesiastes says, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And so sometimes when when we can be confused um, in in our age and in our culture or angry, um, we can find that God has addressed this many times throughout human histories. And though sometimes the people can change, the philosophies might get tweaked a little bit here and there. Um, the sins may seem more rampant, but a lot of times it's the same problem. And so just kind of want to remind us of that. Um, yes, there can be unique challenges, but the root problems are the same. And the problem is the power, and by that I mean capital P power, of human sin. Human sin. And it's not just um, a A choice, sometimes we act as if we're just kind of born in this world. We have good choices, we have bad choices, but sin itself is a power that everybody is born into that they cannot be delivered from. Apart from God. And so we must understand that. That human sin in, in all of its variations is a power that we cannot deliver ourselves from. And we see in Corinth several different ways that sin is expressed. And many of these are ways in which sin is expressed at times in our church, at times in our homes, at times in our relationships with friends, and clearly in our country. And we've been seeing some of that play out as Bob has started 1 Corinthians. In the first few chapters of Corinthians, you have the issue of divisions in the church, rivalries in the church, disagreement in the church, controversies in the church. Does it sound familiar? You have the issue of Christian leaders, of how we kind of name particular leaders that are kind of, we're on that team and we're not on the other team. Um, Apollos, Paul. The real spiritual ones that say we're on Jesus' team and we do the same thing. You know, go through the list. MacArthur, Piper, Chandler, Sproul, Calvin, Luther, Arminius. Go down the list. We do that consistently. And then like I said, there's always the real spiritual ones that act as if they're not influenced by anybody and they're the ones who got Jesus. It's me and Jesus, and that's all I need. And of course, there's truth to that, but there also can be an arrogance to that, as if you got your own phone line directly to heaven outside of everybody else. And we've seen that in the first chapter of the way in which divisions can happen just among Christian leaders. Um, We see it in the social status. That's really addressed a lot here. Things like, we just read about it, noble birth. You have wealthy Christians. You have a lot of the Christians in this that weren't wealthy. A lot of them that were poor. You have diversity stuff going on. Jews, Gentiles. Does that sound familiar in our culture? Though it's not Jew and Gentile. Often black and white. You have the religious versus the irreligious. We're the religious ones, we're the Jews, we're the ones with the book. We're the Greeks, we're the ones with the new knowledge, the new philosophies, the ways apart from um, God or the ways of many gods. So you have the religious versus the irreligious division. And we have them as well in our culture. Some of the exact same ones, of course, now political season, which always comes up, I mention it probably almost every sermon, but it's just so obvious that one of the gods in our cultures is politics as a new religion and Democrat versus Republican, left versus right, and how that can infect the church and the ways in which arrogance can play into camps and all of a sudden you have massive division and we see the issue of pride even in what we just read. When you keep going, you end up finding, I think in chapter 5-ish, you start getting into sexual sin and sexual permissiveness in a culture. And again, we think we're unique. Maybe things have gotten so bad or we're Sodom and Gomorrah all over again and all that kind of language, and there's truth to that. But what's interesting about Corinth is Not only do you have the the acceptance of pagan sexual practices, Paul even says you're even worse in the church than the society because you have a man who has his dad's wife and as a church, no big deal. You're fine with it. And so again, in our society, we go through various sexual practices um, and we have concern about that. But we also can see how in this particular church they were affirming it. And they weren't just affirming what the secular society believed. The secular society was going, What in the world? This wouldn't even be accepted here. And so you have that taking place in the church. You end up having legal actions. We live in a very, <laughs> in a society driven by a lot of legal action. Um, and you have, Believers suing one another. You get into food and idols. You have idols that are being worshipped in various temples. And you have food that is being sacrificed to them. And you have Christians that are disagreeing and trying to figure out, you know, mom sacrificed to the idol and was at the temple all the time. There's no way I'm touching that food. I will not eat that food. That Everything about it seems tainted. And you have other Christians that are like, hey, dude, it's just food. It's just meat. Go ahead and eat it. But you kind of have the different controversies you have to work through of what of what can I do, what can I not do, and divisions in the church over what's a conscience issue. When is it a stumbling block issue? When is it just um, maybe something that you can do but I can't do? So you got that going on. In chapter 9, you have Paul kind of bringing up the issue of personal rights and how he kind of talks about his apostleship. And how he did not take his personal rights that he could have taken, but he let them go for the sake of love. We, in our church, especially the last several years, have seen more and more the issues of rights, and especially as Americans. And when do you let go of things and when don't you? And when do you stand up and when do you not stand up? And we see Paul being loving and having a theology of suffering and sacrifice. You have issues of men and women that come up. Um, what do men do? What do women do? What are differences? Head coverings. That's going to be an exciting one when we get to that one. <laughs> um, but you just have, yeah, what's a, what's, what's a man? What's a woman? And of course we deal with that in all kinds of ways now that, that seem new and in some ways are new. Um, but that is front and center In Corinth, you have the issues of spiritual gifts and charismatic gifts, signs, wonders, prophecies, words of knowledge, healings, speaking in tongues and divisions over that spirituality. What is real spirituality? Where the power is, the glitz and the glam. You have bodily resurrection that he gets to. And in a culture that would have been very big on philosophy and good ideas and at times even big on, it doesn't really matter what you do in your body, it's about spirituality. It's about kind of a new level, uh, Gnosticism in the culture. The spirituality can be disconnected from the physical. And Paul basically says, no, we serve a Christ who is alive bodily. And so the point is, there's a lot for us in this book and God has, I think, a lot to say. So I encourage you, um, as you begin to read these, um, at, at, as we do these sermons, don't just do the Sunday thing. There is a lot here that matters and that we can put into practice and deal with issues that we are facing today. And not just in the us versus them thing. And the oh, society's going this way, and we're going to get all of our arguments of why we shouldn't do this, that, or the other thing. But again, the the problems, the sin. There's been ways in which it's in our hearts. It's not just out there, but it's in here and it's in us. And we need to admit that and we need to repent in ways in which we should. So we see that in Corinth. Uh, just a quick thing on Corinth and, and the city. I love what one commentator says. It says, a Corinth is at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. That was kind of a good way to picture it kind of a bustling city. New York, professionalism, wealth. You know, Los Angeles, kind of Hollywood, Las Vegas. Think of the strip and everything else that goes along with that. Um, And that was Corinth. So, again, America, entertainment. (laughs) Um, There's a lot that they have for us here. So, we're going to look at our text. That was kind of a, Overview, but I always think it's really helpful to kind of put the whole thing together and then kind of start to zoom in. Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So he's saying, consider your calling. Where were you at in society? Consider that. Not many of you. So again, he's speaking to this church. Not many of you were super wise. Okay, you're not the philosophers that are standing up doing all the stuff. Um, not many were powerful. You don't have positions and seats of power necessarily in, in the city. Not many were of noble birth. So some of the things that are valued in this culture that you in, not many of you here in this church are that. And of course, when he's saying brothers, he's talking to everyone in the community and not just to the men. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so what we learn is that there is a reversal of order that should be in the church community. It should look different than the values of the world. There is a reversal. And so, Even we can ask ourselves, in what way do we view life and do we live life in a reversal toward the world? The kingdom of God looks different than the country of America or the country of China. The kingdom of God is different than any structure, no matter how bad or how good or the ranking, capitalism, socialism, you go through the list, clearly some are better than others obviously. But the issue here is that he's saying, hey, we have a new society. There is a new kingdom. We are a new community. And this is going to be way different than the values of the world. God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And shame is kind of an intense word. You know, we carry We deal with shame when you think about psychology and trauma and shame, a very popular thing to talk about nowadays and a very important thing to deal with. But so that's a, that's a strong word. God chose what is low and despised in the world. So what the world looks like, looks at as shameful, as despised, as nothing, as ridiculous, God chooses that. even things that are not, are not, so there's the nothing, even things that are not, even things that are absolutely nothing, he brings it to nothing, the things that are. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. There's a complete reversal. There is a new age that is overlapping an old age. The kingdom of God one day will overcome all of the kingdoms of this world. So much so, That in some ways it will cease to exist or at least be redeemed and transformed as the kings of the earth bring in all of their stuff under King Jesus in Revelation. So, God chooses the low, the despised. Now why does God do this? Why does God do that? Why does God not work just according to worldly standards? We find that God does things differently. Paul tells us, so that, what's so that? So that is a purpose statement. Why does God work this way? Why does God choose what is low and despised? Why does he choose people like us here in Corinth that aren't really much of anything when it comes to worldly standards? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's kind of an underline. It's a verse that can be highlighted and underlined. What's the purpose of this? God's aim is to eliminate human boasting. That's one of God's big things. Elimination of human pride. What was one of the problems in the Garden of Eden? What was one of the key things about sin? Thinking of ourself more. Trusting our words, our insights, somebody else's insights more than what God has actually spoken and said. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Pride. One of the great sins. The serious sins. Again, sometimes in our culture we can, if we were to say, what are our, all of our big problems in our culture? We'd probably list a bunch of stuff and probably we would forget pride. Maybe not. Maybe you're super, super humble and impressive um, and you would be the first one to write that down. But I think we forget the pride and we can see that obviously in our culture and you can see it in the expression of all these various sins that you would list of different ways in which pride can be expressed. You can see it especially in politics nowadays and the pride people take in particular parties and the allegiance that they can give. There can be pride all over the place. And God is not a fan of pride, He despises it. In the presence of God, there is no human pride, there is silence. There is worship. There is humility. And so that's why God chooses the things that are weak. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So because of him, from him, From God, you are in Christ Jesus. How do we get in Christ? One way to say it is we put our faith and trust in Christ. What's another way you get in Christ? God puts you there. God is first. God's initiative. God's power. It's grace all the way down. Which, of course, if that's the way we even get into the Christian community, (laughs) how can pride ever be an issue? And, of course, it can because we're sinful. But again, this is the this is the very bottom. It is all of grace. Because of God, you're in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say because of me, because of you. It's because of God you are in Christ. And so we cannot boast in ourselves. What would we have to boast of? What could we bring in the presence of Almighty God, the King of the earth, to boast of? Nothing. In Christ Jesus, again, that phrase comes up all the time throughout Paul. It's one of his main themes. If you pick his favorite theme, that's probably it. In Christ, all of the benefits... Of God's blessing are found in the person of Jesus Christ. We are a Jesus people. That's why we're here. Every benefit we have, every salvation blessing that we have is from being in Christ. He is our identity. So again, we live in a culture that loves speaking of identity issues. Sexual identity issues, again, what it even means to be a human being, what it means to be a male, what it means to be a female. Political identity issues. Republican, Democrat, left, centrist, I don't care, independent, go through the list. There's identity issues everywhere. Who are we as a people? We are Christians. We are in Christ Jesus. That is your primary identity. Everything else is under that, all the way. And if anything else is up above that, that's a problem. That is pride. That must bow to Jesus. So, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. So, here we're getting into kind of the benefits. This is Jesus, He became to us wisdom from God. They talk about that a lot. And here, the whole the Greeks value this, and what do the Jews value? Wisdom, sophistry, impressive philosophy, speeches, rhetoric. Is that right? Rhetoric. How do you say that? We, in Christ, become the wisdom of God. Why? Because Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of Proverbs, all the way of life, all the different wisdom of the Old Testament. Jesus is the embodiment of that. So again, we don't just have different ideas and principles and things like that as Christians, which yes, we have them. But it's all because it's connected to a person. It's personalized. It's inside of Christ. He is the wisdom from God. He is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. The only way we are made righteous before God is connected to Christ. It is in him. We don't bring our own righteousness to him in any way, shape or form. Works of the law will not save Doing what is right in the Greek culture what might be accepted of the philosophies of the day will not save you. And so again, there's a lot of righteous talk nowadays. You see it in the way, you can see it on the progressive side. Kind of the sense of righteousness and we shut you down if you don't agree with us. You can also see it on the right side. If you live this kind of way, God and country kind of stuff, we are the righteous ones, you are not. That is not our righteousness. Our righteousness alone is in Jesus Christ. All of those can be ways in which we are self-righteous. But the only way you are made right with God is by the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And he is your righteousness when you trust him. You bring nothing before him. and He clothes you with his righteousness. We bring our unrighteousness. And he doesn't just make us neutral. He gives us the righteousness of Christ as if we had never sinned. We are Um, looked at before God as the righteousness of Christ, as the Son does. And sanctification, fancy word, another one, all these shuns. Sanctification, set apart, holy. And we talk a lot about, you can see in the Bible, there's this kind of um, thing about progressive sanctification, meaning you get saved and and you kind of progressively are sanctified. Sometimes you go, wait a second here, wait, I'm like this you know but there's a way in which sanctification yes there's a sense in which it is progressive but there's also a sense in which it is done because you are in the, you are in Christ and you are sanctified which is why he earlier in 1 Corinthians can say to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and you go wait how in the world are these people sanctified we just mentioned a bunch of issues <laughs> those don't seem very progressively sanctified so there's a sense in which when you are in Christ you are sanctified you are set apart. You are in, um, uh, in the Old Testament. The difference between the pagan nations, uh, the holiness. You, there's a sense of being completely set apart. You are, you are new. You are mine. Um, you are set apart from every other community, and you are holy. Okay. So Jesus is that for us, and redemption, the great theme of things like Exodus and Pharaoh. And deliverance. The Jesus is your deliverance. So this capital P power I talked about, this power of sin. The only way the power of sin is broken is through the redemption of Jesus Christ. You must be delivered. It cannot be something you work up in yourself. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps in Christianity. That is completely foreign to it. You must be redeemed. You must be saved from the, from the power of Pharaoh. Basically, the impossibility of the Jewish people in that um, culture of being oppressed by Pharaoh and Egypt cannot get out. What does God do? He breaks through, he judges them, and he brings them out himself by his hand. So it's fully God must do the redeeming. He must do the saving. We in Christ can be redeemed from our sin completely freed and liberated from the bondage that we are born into. So that, again, another purpose statement, verse 31, so that, so the purpose of that, so, as it is written, so he's kind of going back and saying, okay, it's not just me talking. Bible stuff, back to the Old Testament, this is in Jeremiah. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So again, the whole purpose is so that you're boasting, so that your pride as believers is the Lord, is Christ. That's it. That's our great boast. That's our great offer. It isn't ourselves. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And all of us need to hear that. That is our only hope. That is our only hope. That is our pride. The Lord Jesus Christ. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So again, he didn't come like they would come in that day, maybe especially on the Greek side with a bunch of awesome speech, um, a bunch of um, good philosophy and ideas. He did not come that way. He came different. He proclaimed the testimony of God. The mystery, if you go down on the footnote, the secret, which they were into, they were into kind of mysteries and secrets and ideas and kind of secret knowledge. But the difference between this kind of knowledge is it isn't secret in the sense of it was public. Jesus came in the flesh to die and to rise again and to triumph. So the message that we believe isn't like some kind of like conspiracy theory mystery that kind of nobody knows and we're on the good insight. It's that no, this was publicly revealed before you through a crucified Messiah. So it doesn't come with just some amazing speech and philosophical book. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There it is. This testimony of God that I, that I give, it's a crucified Christ. It is the cross. And again, we don't always understand the spectacle of what the cross would have been, there was a sense of of a disgusting, almost entertainment value of the the crucifixion of criminals. That we actually serve as king, the one who was beaten, stripped naked before public, hung on a cross, he would have to lift up for breath, bloodied, dying before his disciples, before his mother, before everything else. Utterly shamed in that culture. That the very bottom of it. That is the message that we offer. This is our king. This is what Christianity looks like. This is the message. And Paul says he just, he's decided to know nothing among you. That's it. That's what, that's what I came saying. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the point. When we introduce people to Christianity... We don't start with it's this, that, or the other thing, or it's doing this or doing that. No, it's the achievement of God over human sin. And it's the way in which he did it, which was through the crucifixion and death of Christ. And they would have thought that utterly ridiculous. They would have thought that shameful. Which is why he said earlier, it's a stumbling block to Jews, it's folly, it's ridiculousness to the Gentiles. The religious people, it's, whoa, there's no way God would stoop that low. It's folly, it's ridiculous, it's totally different to the Gentiles. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and that's interesting too. Because he comes, so how does he come? He comes with this ridiculous, foolish, shameful message that makes no sense in that culture. And even the way that he does it is kind of ridiculous. It's fear and trembling. It's not fancy language and pride. And let me give you my wonderful speech. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So again, he's not drawing attention to himself. I'm here so that you would follow me. And no, we say no I am here to give the message of the achievement of God which looks shameful and foolish in the world. And that's where the power is. That is the power. What's that word you probably heard that's dynamite basically. The dynamite of God that it can explode any other form of human wisdom or human achievement is the crucif- is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's who we serve. The crucified Messiah. The king who comes not as a stump speech looking for votes or this, that, or the other thing. Flashy advertisements, money. The king comes, the one our allegiance is to, comes and dies. Stripped naked, with criminals, bloodied, dead. Dead. And that's our message. That's our king. That's what Christianity looks like. That's the community we are in. Did he rise from the dead? Is very important. Absolutely. When you say cross, you speak of both. But in this particular passage, he's wanting us to feel the shame, the foolishness, the ridiculousness of it. Not the glitz, glam, razzle, dazzle that Corinth wants. And why again does he do that? So that the purpose statement, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, not my wisdom, Paul, not any other preacher who gets up me or anybody else. It's not about that. It's about the power of God. It's about the achievement of God for sinful men and women that came through in weakness and was risen in power. And that's how the victory came. The victory came through death. And so, that's the solution to our problems. That's the solution to the personal issues that you face today, this week. That's the solution to all of our church issues, inside of our church, outside of our church. That's the solution that we need as this country, every country. This is our king. This is the way of Christianity, the symbol Is a cross. Why? So that boasting would be eliminated and so that we would boast in God. Because that's where all the blessings come from. That's actually where the power is. So let's sing. Chapter 11 For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this and remember. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread...